It is indeed an honor and privilege to be with you today. John and I do go way back, and I found out when he and Karen and their family came to Johnston Chapel, I immediately recognized I had found a kindred spirit. Theologically, as far as preaching and ministry is concerned, I had found someone who who really was a kindred spirit and a blessing to my heart, and his friendship has grown much more special to me over the last few years. He's been one of those friends that I can sit down with and just pour out my heart and talk about ministry and what's going on, and uh, it's been a real blessing. So thank you, Pastor John, for inviting me to come and spend these two weeks ministering alongside you. I also know Pastor Brian. For many years, we served together on the board at Piedmont Bible College, Piedmont International University, and uh, got to know each other well there, and I appreciate his gifts and skills. You are blessed to have your pastors here. I'm sure you appreciate that and know that, but I want you to know from an outsider's perspective, these two men are top shelf, and uh, you're blessed to have them here. In these two weeks that I'm with you, I want to to spend some time talking today about where is God when I am lonely. Next week, I want to talk about where is God when life seems out of control. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that we know where God is. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't left us. He's always with us. So really, maybe a better way to ask that question would be, what is God doing when I am lonely? What is God doing when life seems out of control? Today, I want us to look at 1 Kings chapter 17, where we find a biblical passage that deals with loneliness and a flesh and blood example of a man who went through a period of loneliness in his life. And so we're going to help have him help us understand what is God doing when I'm lonely? That man is Elijah. His story is described for us in 1 Kings chapter 17. And while you're finding your place there, I want to remind you that Elijah burst on the scene of Israel like a a comet coming across the darkness of inky space as he bursts into the, the throne room of King Ahab and boldly says these words found in chapter 17 of 1 Kings verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then he leaves. I mean, no introduction to Elijah, no preface, no building up to who he is, where he's come from, what he's done. He just bursts on the scene, boldly makes this prophecy of no rain, no dew except at my word, and then walks out. So you might think, wow, he's been faithful to proclaim the message of God. He's been faithful to serve God as God has told him to do. So now God has something really special for him. Maybe he's going to go on an evangelistic crusade throughout Israel and announce the drought and and call the nation back to God. Maybe wicked King Ahab and his wicked Queen Jezebel will both get saved and come to the Lord and there'll be a great revival in Israel. Or maybe, maybe he'll get the peach job of all. God will call him to minister in the temple in Jerusalem. Wow, wouldn't that be a great ministry? But let's see what God does with him. Look at verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, 
which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. So rather than God moving him on to some bigger and better ministry or opportunity, God forces him into isolation and seclusion and loneliness in an out-of-the-way place called Kareth. Now, I think probably all of us, if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. All of us in this room probably have experienced times of solitude and loneliness. All of us experience times in life where it seems as though God has called a time out and we are placed into an isolated situation, set aside. We wonder if we are even needed anymore or if God will ever use us again or ever be with us again like we have seen him do so in the past. In those times you can feel an incredible loneliness. You can feel isolated and set aside and and that may come for any number of reasons. It may happen because of an extended illness that you finally or suddenly find yourself in. You may find this kind of time out in your life because of a spouse who is no longer attentive to you or your needs and you find yourself drifting further and further apart. Or maybe a spouse has died and those evenings and especially nights are so incredibly lonely. Or maybe that time comes because a friend has turned against you because of a misunderstanding. Or maybe your company is downsizing and they've told you your job is no longer needed. Or possibly you're just going through an inner struggle that you can't really share with anybody else. And any kind of leadership position that any of you may have carries with it a natural type of isolation and loneliness whether that be government leadership or educational leadership or military leadership or business leadership or ministry leadership. Leadership carries with it a built-in isolation and loneliness. So what is God doing? Because in those times when we are incredibly lonely, it may feel as though God is no longer hearing us. God is no longer listening to our prayers. God is no longer working in our lives. In fact, we may even be tempted to think God has left us. Our spiritual vision gets blurry. And we have difficulty seeing the hand of God. We have difficulty sensing or feeling the presence of God. That is a, a very dangerous place to be because it's at those times in our lives that we can go into a spiritual free fall and even get so discouraged that we feel like giving up. So this morning, let's, let's go together and sit down beside Elijah at an isolated, out-of-the-way place called Kareth. And let's see what God was doing in his life because it may well be that God does the same things, chooses to do, is seeking to do the same things in our lives in times when we are so very lonely. In Elijah's life, the first thing we see God doing is a work of protection, 
a work of protection. We need to learn in our loneliness that God can take care of us. I want you to look again at verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You see the word hide? It's a word which literally carries with it the idea, the subordinate idea of protection. It's not necessarily hide in the sense that I'm going to conceal you uh, from people. It's not necessarily hide in the sense that I'm going to have you withdraw from the daily uh, things of life, although both of those things are true in this case. Really, the idea that God's getting across to us with this word is I'm going to shield you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to hide you in that sense of protection. Now, certainly... He needed that kind of protection. Ahab was going to be out after him. I mean, he just popped into Ahab's court, announced this drought, and left. And so Ahab wants to get his hands on this prophet. Elijah has just quickly shot up to number one on the ten most wanted list in Israel. And and it's clear that Ahab did want to get him. In chapter 18 and verse 10, when one of Ahab's servants, Obadiah, meets up with Elijah, he says this to Elijah, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. So it's clear Ahab was looking for him. He wanted him. And so God says, I'm going to hide you, I'm going to protect you and shield you from Ahab. But you know, there were a lot of people that probably wanted to get their hands on Elijah. Think of the United Farm Workers. Think of the Samaria Garden and Flower Club. Think of the the beautification lawn uh, contests in the upper suburbs of Samaria. I mean, those folks didn't want this three and a half year drought. And so everybody wants to get Elijah. And God says, I am going to to hide you. I'm going to protect you, to shield you from those who are out after you. In fact, Elijah was so well hidden that we still don't know where Kareth was. The the, uh, turn eastward, the word eastward can also be translated on the face of. So whether it was on the east side of Jordan, we're not sure, but it was in one of those ravines that, that cut down through the countryside into the Jordan Valley and the Jordan River. God hid him well. What about us? Well, we're probably not needing protection from a king or government authority, although with the way our culture's growing, that may come before we realize it. But there are other effective means of people getting to us in our times of loneliness, and they usually involve words. You know, the subtle barbs that people can say to you when you're going through a very difficult time, the insinuations of maybe something you've done wrong, the gossip that starts to circle around you when things are not going in your life like they should, people insinuating that you've done something wrong or something's wrong with your relationship with God. All of those things happen, can certainly happen. People can attack us in those ways, in those lonely times. So that's why it's so interesting to me that God uses this very same word in the book of Psalms to describe being sheltered and protected 
from the words, from the tongues of people. Just listen to these representative verses. You find this often in the Psalms. Both of these Psalms written by David, and we know that he faced a lot of this, but David said in Psalm 31:20, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. In Psalm 64, verses 2 to 4, David would say this, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who whet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. David knew what it was like to face the arrows of words, the swords of words, the angry, insinuating, gossiping words of people. One of the hardest things about timeouts in our lives, about lonely times, is the things people say. Uh, if you're familiar with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the last half of the 1800s, early in his ministry, something would happen to him every week. Every Monday morning, he would find an envelope under his office door. Someone had slipped it there before he would come into his office, and he would open the envelope, and it would be an anonymous letter from someone in the church correcting him on all of his grammatical errors from the sermon the day before. Now, I'm here to tell you, every pastor just loves that kind of letter, don't you, John? Just love that kind of letter. Oh, I can't wait till Monday and get that letter again. I've gotten my fair share of anonymous letters through the years, and they are so hurtful. People, people realize that cloaked with an anonymity, they can say anything they want, and they do. And, and so um, I had to learn, and I'm still learning, by the way, I had to learn, am I going to become angry, and I'm gonna, am I going to become defensive, Am I going to want to strike out at somebody? Because an anonymous letter, there's nobody to strike out at, you see. You know, who, who sent it? Am I going to do that? Or can I trust God to take care of me? Can I trust his protection and rest my case with him, trusting him to make all things right in his own time, in his own way, when he chooses to do so? God was teaching Elijah that he could protect him. God was doing a work of protection, and he will do that for us as well. The second work that God was doing in Elijah's life was a work of providence. We need to learn, especially in difficult times of life when we feel so lonely, that God is in complete control of the situation in our lives. Do you believe that God's sovereign? Do you believe he rules on his throne? Do you believe is his providence, which means that he controls, works out his plan in all the details and circumstances of our lives? I can see you believe that. It's easier to believe it than it is to really live in that and practice that knowledge. The fact that God is in complete control of my situation, in his providence, working out exactly what he wills, that's sometimes hard to see. Notice it in Elijah's life. Verse 4, you shall drink from the brook, 
and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now skip down to verse 6. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now think about what we're reading here. God commands the ravens. The word command is a word of authority. And so that demonstrates God's authority over his creation. He commands the ravens to bring food, bread and meat, to Elijah twice a day. Now, I probably don't need to remind you, ravens are not the most likely caterers. They're birds of prey. They feed on small animals and dead animals. They're kind of like the birds you see along the highway feasting on the roadkill. That's ravens. And they're going to bring me meat? Really? I mean, not just a piece of bone left over from what they've already... But uh, real meat? They're gonna, twice a day? Yes, because God has commanded them. They are a part of his creation. He is in sovereign control over them. He providentially controls their flight and where they will find food and the fact that they will not eat any of it till they drop it at Elijah's dinner table. That is providence. Can you believe that God does the same thing with you? That God is in complete control of the situations that brought you, have brought you to a place of loneliness and isolation in your life? Do you believe that God really is in control of situations that bring illness or disaster or opposition or the loss of a mate? or whatever it may be that is, has thrust you into that loneliness in your life, do you really believe that God does that? Do you really understand that in the midst of that time out, God has not forgotten you? He's not lost the handle on the situation. He's not in heaven wringing his hands thinking, oh, what do we do next? No, God is in control of the situation. And providentially, he is at work in your life. I read the story Fascinating story of a navigator's missionary to Africa. A man who had been working with navigators here in the States felt God prompting him to go to Uganda. And so he and his wife prayed about it for a time, and they decided, yes, that really was the place that they should go. And, and so he uprooted his family, and they went to Kenya, where he put his wife and children in a hotel while he rented a Land Rover and, and made a survey trip into Uganda. And he said the first night where uh, he was going to stop someplace to, to rest for that night, he said when he drove into that town earlier in the day, he said he saw several children firing automatic weapons up into the air, and when he drove by them, they lowered their weapons, pointed them at him, and smiled real big. And he suddenly said, Lord, are you sure I'm in the right place? Well, he went ahead and did his survey trip through the day, and then he got tired that night, came back to that other little town, and found the one motel in that little town, a dingy little place. And he went to the front desk, and he said, do you have any rooms available? And the man at the desk said, we've got one bed left in this hotel. You can have it. And so he went up two flights of steps and walked into this room, cut on the light. It was a, a bare light bulb hanging by a single wire over a table. And he noticed there were two beds in the room. 
One of them was unmade, the other had been slept in and was unmade, and suddenly he realized, I'm sharing this room with somebody else, who I don't know. And he said a chill went up his spine. So about that time he decided, I've got to pray, and he knelt down by the, the bed that was still made and, and began to pray and said, Lord, is this really what you want me to do? He said these words, I dropped to my knees and I said, Lord, look, I'm afraid. I'm in a country I don't know, in a culture that's totally unfamiliar. I have no idea who sleeps in that bed. Please, show me that you're in this move. He said he hadn't even finished praying when he heard the door open. And he looked around, there's a six foot five African walking in the room, big burly guy, and the guy says to him, what are you doing in my room? And by this time, the missionary is beginning to tremble just a little bit. And he said to him, well, they told me that I could have this bed, but I promise you, I'm only here for one night. And the man said to him, what are you doing in my country? He said, well, I'm here with uh, navigators to set up a navigator's ministry, a Christian organization called Navigators in, in this country. And the, the man at the door, the six-foot-five burly man said, hmm, Navigators, Colorado Springs. And he burst into a big smile, came over to the man and picked him up and danced around the room with him. And then he pulled out this little memory verse packet out of his pocket. Some of you have seen them. You may have used them. Scripture verses that you memorize, and at the bottom it said, Navigators, Colorado Springs. And so he said to the missionary, Are you from Colorado Springs? And the missionary said, Well, I was, but I've come to this country to set up a navigator's ministry in this country. And that man said, Praise God, I've been praying for two years that God would send someone from Colorado Springs, navigators, to set up a ministry in our country. That African man became his best friend, helped him with the language, and became a board member of the Navigator's Ministry in Uganda. Now you tell me that God's not in control of situations. Even the times when we are most fearful and feel most alone in this world, God is still at work. God is providentially at work. And he is in your life. He is in my life. Regardless of how lonely or desperate or set aside you may feel on this day, God is providentially in control. So God was doing a work of providence in Elijah's life. But the third work God was doing in Elijah's life was a work of proving. A work of proving. We need to understand that God has reasons for testing us. He has reasons for testing us. Now, I don't mean that in the sense that so often rolls easily off the the tongues of people when they're trying to comfort a friend who's going through a difficult time and say, God always has a purpose. Well, it's very easy to say that, but it's very true that God has a reason for testing us. Look, if you will, in verse 4 again, God has told Elijah, you're going to drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, right about that point, I know what I would be thinking. God, are you sure that's a good enough hiding place? Are you sure I'm going to have enough food and drink in an out-of-the-way place like that? And did I hear you say something about ravens bringing food? 
But there's no indication that Elijah raised those questions. Verse 5 simply says, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And as we know in verse 6, the ravens did provide him food, the brook provided him drink. But look at verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Why was there no rain in the land? Because God used the prophet Elijah to prophesy there would be no rain. Elijah's a reason for no rain. But I'm sure Elijah may be thinking, I would be, I'd be thinking, Lord, that's not fair. I served you. I faithfully declared your word. You told me there would be food here. There would be a brook to give me drink. And every day this brook is drying up. Lord, that's not fair. What are you doing here? I love what Chuck Swindoll said in uh, his excellent little book on Elijah. He said this, Our human feelings tell us that once our Heavenly Father gives water, he should never take it away. It just wouldn't be fair. Once God gives a mate, he should never take a mate. Once God gives a child, he should never take a child. Once he gives a good business, he has no right to take that business. Once he gives, or once he provides a pastor, he must never call him elsewhere. Once he gives us growth and delight in a ministry, he has no right to step in and say, wait a minute, there's no need to grow larger, let me take you deeper instead. Swindoll goes on to say, when we hit a tough spot, our tendency is to feel abandoned, to become resentful, to think, how could God forget me? In fact, just the opposite is true, for at that moment, we are more than ever the object of his concern. God has reasons for testing us. You know, I, I really believe that we buy more into the prosperity gospel than we admit. If I've heard this one time in my 45 years of pastoral ministry, I've heard it a hundred at least. And that is someone giving their story to me about what tragedy has just befallen them and saying, why would God do that? I, I was faithful to him. I lived for him. I came to church regularly. I, I tried to serve God. Why would he do this to me? That's prosperity gospel. You see, that's, that's basically saying, if I check off all the boxes and do all the right things and I'm faithful to God, God is bound. He guarantees that I won't suffer any. I won't hurt any. I won't, I won't face any problems. I'll have good health. I'll have all I need. That's prosperity gospel. That's not Bible gospel. You see, folks, we, we know this theologically. We just have trouble living it out. We know that we live in a fallen world. A world that's broken because of Adam's sin and God cursed all of nature and all of its processes and, and we are cursed with a sin nature. God has never promised in his word to shield us from everything difficult in life or everything bad in life. He's never promised to shield us from all of those events and circumstances. Our cars break down just like the pagans' cars do. You know, we get sick and end up in the hospital just like the pagans do. And for people to say, that shouldn't happen to me, I'm a believer, I follow the Lord. That's prosperity gospel thinking. Biblical thinking is to recognize that we live in a fallen world, we're going to suffer some because of that, we're going to, Romans 8 terminology, we're going to groan 
until we are finally released from this sin-cursed earth and body that we're going to groan. We're going to have trouble. We're going to have difficulty. The one thing that's different from us and a pagan is that God promises to be with us through everything difficult we go through. Isaiah 43.2 says that when you go through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the flood, it will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be consumed. So we're going to go through some hard waters, aren't we? We're going to go through some fires, but we will not be consumed. We will not be abandoned by God. He will be with us all the way. But not only does God make a distinction in being with us all the time and strengthening us and helping us, God uses those tests, those difficult times when the brook is drying up and we don't know where to go next or what to do next. God uses those times to test us. And he has a perfect purpose for doing that. The New Testament tells us this. The New Testament tells us in the book of Romans chapter 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, count it all joy. He doesn't say feel joy or experience joy. He says count it, reckon it. Just in your mind, make up, this is something I should be joyful about. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? How can we be joyful in trials? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Someday we're going to be in Christ's presence. And when we are in his presence, he is revealed in his glory then the tests that he has put us through, which has refined and purified our faith, and according to James and, and Romans, has worked character in us, that will show the glory of Christ that he could take even the bad things, the difficult things, the lonely times, and produce character in us. You see, What's wrong with us oftentimes is we pray this, Lord, I want to be godly, but all the time we're thinking, just don't let it hurt too much. Lord, teach me dependence on you, but don't take away any of my creature comforts. Lord, help me to be spiritually strong, just don't allow me to suffer. You know what? That's like a recruit going into the army and saying, okay, make me a good soldier, but let's just skip basic training. Now, basic training is what develops the heart and mind and body and discipline of a person into a good soldier. And that's exactly what God does with us through testing. 
He has reasons for testing us. He was proving Elijah, will you trust me more than you trust that brook? Will you trust that I will provide for you in some other way if that brook dries up? Will you trust me or are you going to trust what you see right in front of you? So when God is dealing with us in times that we're incredibly lonely and may feel abandoned by him, that he's not hearing us anymore, it is in those moments, just like Chuck Swindoll said, it is in those moments that we are more than ever the object of his concern because he is proving us, he's testing us and working out his glory through us. So God was doing a work in Elijah's life of protection and of providence and of proving, but he was also doing a work of preparation. God was doing a work of preparation in Elijah's life. Now, I don't have a verse in these first seven verses to show you that. What I'm going to say next is really more fleshed out in the whole context of Elijah's life and ministry. The pinnacle, pardon the pun, the pinnacle of Elijah's ministry would be on Mount Carmel in chapter 18. Remember when he challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest? You 450 prophets show up. We're going to have a bull for you, you know, to, to uh, offer, and I'll offer a separate animal, and uh, we'll both pray to our God. I'll pray to Jehovah. You pray to your God, Baal. And uh, whoever answers by fire from heaven will be seen will be demonstrated to be the true God. This is a contest to prove to the nation of Israel that Baal is not who he claims to be, that only God is the true God. That's the pinnacle of Elijah's ministry. But in the three and a half years leading up to that, God's been preparing him through everything he brings into his life. He's been preparing him for that public platform of ministry by what's going on in the hidden places and the secret places of his heart, and the secret places of loneliness and trial and difficulty. You see, Baal was considered to be the fertility god on the part of the Phoenicians, and that's where Jezebel brought it from and instituted it in Israel. Baal was seen to be the fertility god who brought storms along with their lightning and rain, which replenished the earth and allowed the earth to bring forth crops, which gave the people food. So you see, Baal is involved in giving food. He is involved in giving rain. He's involved in giving life back to the land. And all that's through storms that have fire from heaven. That's Baal. And what God has been proving to Elijah for three and a half years is, no, no, Elijah, I'm the God who does that. So Baal claims he can give food. I'll show you that I can feed you with ravens. And I can give you a brook to drink from. And when it looks like that supply is gone, I'll take you to Zarephath, to a widow who has only enough meal and oil for one last meal. And you'll ask her to fix that for you. And then when she obeys, God will replenish her coffers every day for what she needs for that day. I'll show you I'm the one who gives food. So Baal claims to give life. The son of that widow in Zarephath would die. And Elijah would be given the power from God to raise him from the dead. And there's no, no precedent of that anywhere in the Bible. We don't know of any place else in the Bible prior to this time where anybody's been raised from the dead. So God said, I'll show you, I'm the true God, not Baal. So Baal gives rain. 
I'll show you, Elijah, I'm the one who gives rain. You prophesy a three-and-a-half-year drought, and that's exactly what happened. By the time Elijah gets to Mount Carmel, there's only one thing that Baal's supposed to do that God hasn't done for Elijah, and that's give fire from heaven. But God has prepared him to be ready for that to happen, and I think that's probably the reason he announced that will be the contest. Because I'm looking forward to God doing the last thing that Baal claims to do. God had prepared his heart to believe that, that he could give rain, that God could give rain. And, not just, and God could give light or, or fire from heaven, not just in lightning. Because remember, at the time on Mount Carmel, there'd been a three and a half year drought, and there was no, not even a cloud in the sky, because it was after that that Elijah would pray. Remember, he'd send his servant, is there any, any clouds yet? Oh, I see a little cloud forming out over the Mediterranean. There weren't even any clouds in the sky. But to believe that God would produce fire from heaven out of a clear blue sky was because God had prepared him for that. Can we grasp that whatever we're going through that makes us feel such difficulty and so lonely, like God has abandoned us? No, 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 he hasn't. All this time, he's preparing you for something you may not know yet. I may not know yet what it is, but he's preparing you for something. It may not be as big a stage as what Elijah was on. It may be to be able to minister to a friend, a neighbor, a family member because of something you've gone through. But everything he does in your life and mine is preparation for something he's going to use us to do in the future. Tom Watson Sr. was the founder of IBM. And for the first 40 years, he served as the CEO. He ran the company. One of his best leadership days came after a junior executive had risked a, a difficult venture for the company and in the process lost $10 million. And so Tom Watson calls him into his office, and the junior executive comes in with his head down and says, I guess you want my resignation, right? And Watson said, are you serious? We just spent $10 million educating you. Well, that's what God does, right? What we consider failure, what we consider huge difficulty, what we consider insurmountable trials, God is simply using to educate us, to prepare us for how he wants to use us in the future. Friend, I'm here today to tell you, don't miss what God's doing in those lonely times in your life. Have you ever watched what happens at a, in a timeout in a basketball game? You know, it's hard to watch them on TV anymore, the timeouts, because they just go off to a commercial. But occasionally, they'll let the camera run on the bench, and you can kind of see what's happening. A timeout may be the most crucial part of the game. You know, managers are getting water bottles and towels for the guys, the players who've been in the, uh, on the court. Uh, one of the trainers is checking the knee brace of the star forward to make sure it's on tight enough and his knee's not going to give him any trouble. One of the assistant coaches is over at the scorer's table to find out how many fouls does their center have and, and how many timeouts do we have left. The other assistant coaches and the head coach are gathered out in little chairs on the floor, mapping out the next play and what the responsibility of each player will be. Then they quickly go to the bench and they map out for each player what your responsibility is. This is the play we're going to run coming out of the timeout. There's a lot going on in a timeout. 
You don't want to miss it as a basketball fan, and you certainly don't want to miss it as a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So when you're in a timeout, when you're in a time of incredible loneliness, difficulty, and trial in your life, don't miss what God is doing because He is active. He can take care of you. He's doing a work of protection. He's in complete control of the situation. He's doing a work of providence. He has reasons for testing you. He's doing a work of proving. And he's preparing you for something he wants for you in the future. That's why the Bible says we can rejoice in suffering. We can count it joy when we go through trials. If you're lonely here today, first of all, I would say to you, make sure that you've come to the Savior that you know Jesus as your Savior, the one who died for your sins on the cross. Make sure that you know him so that you have someone to walk with you through life and all of these hills and valleys. If you do know Jesus, take a different look at your time of loneliness and trust God he is with you and working just like he was Elijah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word touches on every aspect of life which we experience. Thank you for examples like Elijah, not because he's the hero, but because we can see behind the scenes how you worked in his life. And I pray that we would be able to see behind the scenes of our lives to trust, even when we can't feel it, even when we can't see it, to trust that you are doing something good. Lord, comfort and encourage and instruct each heart here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.